my magnetic personality. <laughs> How many of you have an old Bible? How many of yours looks kind of like this? If you do, I'm proud of you. Okay, because the electronic ones, you can just keep pushing them buttons and they never wear out. And if you write on them, they get really funny. This morning, before we start, I want to read a statement for the church from the elders. And this being an election season and upcoming. And if you're watching and you're not from this part of the country or wherever, I think these things still apply. But uh, it is something that JIBC has stood behind since I started going here. And it goes as follows. The leadership of JIBC have a long and a standing policy and practice of not being involved with politics. We do not publicly endorse candidates or take sides on issues. The only exception is when the issue clearly and singularly pertains to an issue addressed in Scripture. While this may seem to be deflective, it protects JIBC as an, in, as an entity from accusations of using our pulpit as a political platform. The express focus of JIBC and her leadership is pointing lives to Jesus Christ. And anything outside that focus would serve to distract and possibly divide from our stated purpose. Now, do we as leaders have opinions? Count on it. Okay, you can count on it. Do we differ? I'm not going to answer that question. I'm just going to tell you that we have chosen to keep those opinions and our thoughts to ourselves. You can ask me my opinion, and I will tell you like my dad told me. That's none of your business. Okay, that's the only time my dad ever told me he would not answer that question, because I never ask it again. So... There is our statement on politics, and we have stood behind that now since I got here in 1998, which for some of you was several years before you were born. This morning, we're back in God's Word in the book of Genesis, chapter 35, and as, as I have continued to study this book, I continue to marvel at just how ugly some of the chapters in human history truly are. There are chunks of Genesis where you just have to ask yourself, why didn't God just take his big thumb and go, all done? You think of what we went through with the cave of Zor, with Sodom and Gomorrah, with the defilement of Dinah, and then the subsequent killing of all the men of Shechem, and just on and on and on. There's things in the book of Genesis that are horribly ugly, and yet there are things in the book of Genesis that are so sweet and so wonderful and so pure. You think about creation and all that God put in it and all that he gave us, and you think about the relationship between a husband and wife, and God has made that, and then the, uh, the blessing of children. And, and I will let you decide exactly how much of a blessing that is. Uh, some of you that have a lot of children, sometimes the blessing seems to overwhelm. But this morning, there's a huge difference in our text from chapter 34 of Genesis to 35 of the same book. Verse 34, or chapter 34, is void of any mention of God, and yet you see what became of it. The vengeance that uh, was waged against the people of Shechem, the men of Shechem, uh, the defilement of Dinah, uh, 
And then you get to this beautiful chapter, chapter 35, and there's no less than 10 references to God, depending on what version of the Bible you carry. The, 40, the 34th chapter is full of lust and envy and strife and murder and wickedness, contrasted to today's passage, which is chapter 35, which is full of hope. It's full of forgiveness. And even sadly, it has the passing of a loved one later on in the particular chapter. Let me read this for you this morning. Then, then God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and live there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak tree which was near Shechem. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, and he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because their God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak, and it was called Alon Bakath. I'm really not very good on my Hebrew pronunciation, so you have to bear with me. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he had come from Padaram, and he blessed him. And God said to him, your name, <clears throat> pardon me, is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. And the land which I give to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a libation on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. And they journeyed from Bethel, and there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. And it came about when she was in severe labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. And it came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Benoin, and his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar over her grave that is there to this day. Then journey, then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder, and they came about while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now there were twelve sons of Jacob, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob the firstborn, then Simeon, and Levi, and Judah, and Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, and the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan, and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad, and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padaram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre and at Kirath Arabah, 
and that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Pardon me. Father God, we'd ask that you would take this time this morning, put us aside, allow us to dismiss all those thoughts, but that which is before us this morning in the text. Let us, if you will, disconnect from the cares and the worries of this world. I'd ask that for me, that you would forgive me where I failed you, cleanse me, use me. Lord, for those that are under the hearing of my voice and the seeing of my face, that, Lord, you would do the same. May they seek your face this morning as we open your word. As we share its contents with each other, as your word begins to minister to our heart, that these would not just be stories and accounts from a time long, long, long ago, but it would be the working of you in the lives of man. And even to this day, these workings still have influence in our world. Lord, watch over us and guide us this morning. Lead me as I lead us. Lord, we just pray that you would be glorified in all that we say and do. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll remember from Genesis 34, 30, Jacob finally mans up and scolds his son. How many of you adult men here have ever been scolded by your father? Did your dad ever, ever talk to you? I have, I have two older brothers, okay? And, and they're really good guys, but they're old. One of them is four years older than me, and the other one's five years older than me. And it seemed like I always got yelled at. Of course, they'll tell you I was the favored child, so I was, got everything I wanted because I'm the baby, right? But I can remember my dad coming down on me hard when I'd done something wrong and just pretty much put me in my place. And in this case, as we look at this passage in Scripture, if we consider back to the, the verse 30 of chapter 34, it's too late. The damage is done. The water is under the bridge, the horse is out of the barn, however you want to say it. The murder at Shechem has already happened. It's a little late to instruct your children about righteousness and behavior and God's vengeance and how he'll take it when they've already committed the deed. You know, it's, it's kind of like telling your children not to touch the hot stove after they have the blister on their hands. There's a way to do it, and he had missed it. I will add this to you this morning, and this is free. You can take this or leave it. Fathers, mothers, your children don't need a friend. They need a parent. They need you to be the parent, to set the stage, to set the standards, to set the rules. And then as hard as it is, live by those rules. I've seen too many children wander astray because mom and dad wanted to be their friends. They don't need you to be their friend. They need you to be their parent. Friends they can make at school. Although in chapter 35, we see that God uses the murder at Shechem as a tool to create fear. But his performance, like I said, as a father and a leader is a bit too late. So we see here in the beginning of chapter 35, God says to Jacob, arise and go on to Bethel. Once again, they're moving. They're moving on. How many of you have ever moved? Put all your stuff in a truck or three cars. Or Remember when you were younger and you moved, it took like a minivan and a car and you got it all, right? Well... Try that now after you've been together for a while. Some of you have been married a lot longer than I have, and, and after over four decades, if Tony and I go to move, I, I, I'm just going to sell the house as it is. 
take some pictures, maybe my laptop, just let it all go, uh, golf clubs, keep those two. So you pull up stakes and you go live somewhere else. There's uh, some chaos. There's, um, there's all kinds of questions. If you were in the military and God moved you from one country to another, uh, so many things change. The language change, the places change, the names change. You know, it's, it's different when we moved to West Virginia. Where is stuff? Where do I go? What do I do this? What's, what's up with West Virginia? And uh, there's a picture I want to show you. Okay. It may not look like much to you, but this was home when we moved to West Virginia. Tony has a PhD or had a PhD in moving truck packing. We moved once a year for seven years. Sometimes because we wanted to, others times because the landlords wanted us to. And we moved from Centerburg to Bradley, West Virginia, where I went to Bible college, with some friends from church, from Centerburg area, dear friends Calvin and Debbie Prederi. We headed off to this fine mansion. Only we didn't live in the whole thing. We lived, the address where we lived in that house is Upstairs apartment, second house on the left, 5th Street, Bradley, West Virginia, 25818. That was our address. And when I got my electricity turned on, I gave them, they said, where do you live? I said, well, the only thing I know is it's second house on the left, upstairs apartment, 5th Street, Bradley. You know right where that's at. <laughs> and went through the entire chaos of moving. That was just Tony and I and two children. Imagine Jacob and his family moving with their animals and their herds and the children and the adult children and all that's going on around them. For the men, it was probably easier than the women finding a place and settling down and, and establishing themselves there. And that's where God wanted them to be. So go to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared when you fled from your brother Esau. So in verse 2 of 35, Jacob says to his household, put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Remember how they got the foreign gods? Anybody here remember how, how we were told they got their foreign gods from Laban's family? The women had stolen them and had put them in their saddles. And because they were menstruating, the men refused to have them move and look in the saddles. So when they left, everything that was in the saddles went with them. They still had them in their possession. Obviously, Jacob knew this. We would have never told him to put their things away. Remember also, as we look at this passage, that the very men that were responsible for the murder of the men in Shechem are in this very crowd. In this passage in verse 3, or in verse 2, he says, put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. There's a two-part to this changing and this cleansing. The, the rings which they would have had in their ears weren't normal, just studs or posts. I was often tempted as a young man to get an earring, but I never knew which ear to use. That whole thing became very confusing in the 70s, 1970s. And 
it was hard to figure out which one, so I just I got away from it. I, I avoided the tattoo thing as well. And, and here they have these earrings, and they're not just little tiny studs. They would be crescent-shaped earrings that were, would have things engraved on them, and they were um, associated with moon worship of the day. So this was a form of an idol. And he says, hey, look, gather all this stuff up and bury them under an oak tree. Have you ever thrown something away, got rid of something? And in the minute you put it in the trash can or the dumpster, you thought, gee, I probably should have kept that. How many of you have thrown things away and when it hit the trash can, you went good riddance? I've thrown things away that I was glad to see never in my house again. When I finished Bible college, I threw a whole bunch of notes away. There were classes that I didn't enjoy and didn't like, and when they left, I was happy. These people discarded these things because God said, and they buried them and they got rid of them. Put them under the oak tree, no other description, just like throwing the trash away, done. Secondly, a part of this also here, as we look at this passage, put away the foreign gods and purify yourselves. If you think about it, it sounds an awful lot like what Paul said in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Let's read that together. Go there with me, if you would. Ephesians 4, through 24. Paul writing, we'll go back to, uh, let's go back to 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupt in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. It's much like that. He's saying, look, get rid of this old stuff. Get this stuff away from you. Purge yourself. Cleanse yourself. Make it go away. Get rid of that which will drag you backwards. Get rid of that which reminds you of the past. Get rid of that which is sinful in your life. If you will, the whole process here is, is a lot like a washing machine, if you will. I do a lot of laundry. I, I'm, I'm the laundry guy in our house. And I thought about this passage, quite frankly. The first command, the first command is to get rid of the foreign gods. The second one is to purify, and the third is to change your garments. Washed is like the wash cycle at home. You turn your washing machine on, and it starts moving that agitator back and forth, and pretty soon you've got dirty water in there. That's what washing is all about. It removes the dirt. It removes that which is there. The purged is a lot like the spin cycle. Have you ever opened the door to your washing machine and it's in the spin cycle? It doesn't like that. And that's where all the water, all the dirty water goes and it runs out. And if you haven't run your washing machine in a while, it'll kind of have a funny smell to it. Or if you have one of these new fancy high efficiency ones and then you don't dare open the door because you'll just get wet. And, and that's kind of what purged is like. You're purging, it's pushing all of that dirt, all that stuff out. And then the third part of this purify, that's the rinse cycle. When fresh water comes in, fills the tub, and then it begins the same process as washing. Only now the process is to remove all that is left. It is to purify, it's to cleanse. It's to take away those things, which are stains, which are dirt, which is the stuff that you don't want. 
You know, the question before the house this morning is, and I've asked this every time I've preached, have you been washed, purged, and purified? If you're here this morning, have you trusted Christ? Because that's the only way you're going to find this. It's the only way you're going to come to the realization that you're dirty, that you need to be washed, rinsed, and purified. That's how that happens. Purified of those things which hold you back. You know, all of us have sin in our lives. If you don't have sin in your lives, then you can get up and leave, okay? Because I've got nothing to help you with. Uh, I'm preaching to myself now because I know I have sin in my life because I'm a human being. Purified by the presence of the Holy Spirit and His convictions in your life. If, to, if not, then today is your day. I got good news for you. Christ is here for you today. And then moving on at the end of verse 3 into verse 35 or 5, he says, As they journeyed, there was a great terror among the cities that was around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Do you remember in 3430 that Jacob said, Great, now all my enemies are going to hunt me down. They're going to try to kill me for what you've done. Think about it. They had just killed a whole bunch of people. Do you think people around didn't hear about it? Everybody would have heard. They knew. Here come those guys. They killed all them dudes in Shechem. Probably knew the whole story, how they had talked them into being circumcised. And then when they were third day, when they were laid up with the fever, they snuck in and killed them. A lot of people probably wanted to extract some vengeance, but God put a terror in the people around them so they didn't touch these folks. They passed through unabated. It says they were terrified of them. So Jacob come to Luz, which is Bethel, which is the land of Canaan. He and all the people were with him. He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, the God of Bethel, because the God had revealed himself when he fled from his brother. This is a place that was very special to him. And now by relationship, it's special to us. Do you guys have a place in your life that's special? Do you have a do you have a moment when you come to know Christ, if you know him as your Lord and Savior? Do you remember where you were? Do, do you remember that first moment? Do you remember the first time somebody shared Christ with you? And you may not have got saved, but you begin to think, you know, this guy may be onto something here. He, he sure seems to have the answers to the questions that are in my mind. I've told you before, I ran across a guy at, at work called Joe, and uh, Joe wore a mullet and uh, he looked good in it, especially with a hard hat on. And uh, every time I go to work at Honda, or I would go to work at Honda, I would go to where this piece of machinery was, and it was a special moment. Because in that moment, Joe began to speak to me of the presence of God and the power of God and the power of sin and the forgiveness in Christ and a right relationship. And literally standing in that spot some 25 years later, when I went back up to work, I still knew where I was when Joe told me, Paul, you have a problem. You need Jesus for the answer. Is there a spot like that in your life? Is there a place where the presence of God or the God doing something in your life is real and you feel it and you cherish it? That's this place for Jacob. That's this place. Jacob comes here and he begins to fulfill the promise that he made earlier that he would build an altar and he would come back and he would worship and from there he would, he would do the things that he had promised. And we see Jacob now worshiping with a right heart. True worship comes from one thing and it comes from a clean heart, from a right heart. It comes from a heart that is more than just singing. I, as much as I love music, true worship isn't always singing. It isn't always a song service or hymn, hymn singing. Um, 
There can be a lot of emotion involved in worship, but it's not necessarily a requirement for solid worship. Worship is a right heart, a justified heart, a heart that's been quickened by God, a spirit that has been purified by God, a life that has been purged by God, who goes to God himself and worships him, not because of who he is, but rather yet who God is. And seeing his glory and his power and his authority and all the things that he is and his mercy and grace causes that heart to say, truly, you are amazing. That's what worship is. It's not 17 songs. It's not singing just as I am 14 times and then coming down to the altar and leaving just as you were. It is all about the heart towards God, the heart towards what God is doing. It's an acceptance and a realization that you are less than you could be, but God still is making a way for you to be all he wants you to be. John 4, 24, Jesus said, God is spirit and spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. If you come to God and you're living a lie and you're standing in that lie and you're trying to worship God, your, your worship and your prayers are going to bounce off the ceiling. Okay, you cannot deceive God with your worship. You might come and play the greatest music of your life. You may be the greatest at whatever you do, like the football players, and they're running down the field and they're going, I don't know if they're saying they're number one or they're giving glory to God because most of them off the field, their behavior certainly isn't this one. It's more like, you know what I mean? The team's losing 35 to 7. He scores one touchdown and runs off the field and goes, we're number one. No, you're dead last in this game. Okay? So true worship comes from the heart. It's a heart that has been changed by God. There are some songs we sing here, and I can never remember the names of them, so please don't think I'm having a senior moment. But I just can't sing them. They drive me to tears every time we sing these songs. There are some of them I can sing, and frankly, the words, they're just words on a page. And there's some that when I come to that point that I move, that, oh, that he would give his life for me. Who am I that he would shed his blood for me? To sing that with an open heart and to know that you're right with God, the joy of worshiping God just flows from you. I hope you have that experience. I hope that God has quickened your heart in that way. In verse 38, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak. And it was named Alon Bacath, the Oak of Weeping. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, Deborah was 180 years old, and I really don't want to live that long. If I could live that long and be like 35 physically, I'd be good with it. But the closer I get to like 65 and 70, the less I have any desire to live to be 180 years old. I, you know, it comes a point where just like my dad said before he passed, it's just not even fun anymore. But she had lived a good, long life. She had been there for two patriarchs. She had seen and had heard and had watched God change people, had watched children come into the world, had nursed and helped nurse care for some of those. She was a part of the, of the family. She was part of the group. And she, and at her passing, we see that God is certainly beginning to change things. 180 years, just think of the memoirs she could have written.
Just think of the things she knew, how she had watched God change people. And then in verse 9, Then God appeared to Jacob again when he had come to Padaram, and he blessed him. And he said, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel is now your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, But I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply a nation, and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. As I read through that this week, I come to the realization that we take the idea of being fruitful and multiplying, and we apply it to people that are in their childbearing years. Some of you are more fruitful than others. Some of us are producing less fruit now than we ever have. But the simple fact of the matter is, if I may, fruitfulness has nothing to do with children. It has everything to do with what you do with your life. As a grandfather, which quite frankly is a whole lot more fun than being a dad, I found grandparenting to be a whole lot more fun. Any of you grandparents want to admit that? How many of you wish you'd had grandchildren first? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, Dennis has got both hands up. Okay. There's a lot of reasons why, because you have the experiences that go along with you raising your children. Being fruitful means taking the time and the energy and the strengths that God has given you and using them for his glory. Some of us find our strength and our true passions after the children have left the home. After we get some years on us, after we have been through the battles, we begin to realize what God wants us to do And we begin to use our talents and gifts to glorify God in a new way. Okay, it's it's not about how many children you can bring into the world. It's it's about taking your time, your days, your years. I mean, I'm 62. I'll be 63 the 1st of August. And some days I wake up in the morning and and I'm like, surely the end is near. I can just feel it. I, I know today might be my last day. I better write some things down and want my kids to know. And then other days I wake up and I'm like, well, I'm, I'm 35 again. There's a difference in our lives as we grow older about using what you have to glorify God. Be fruitful in your ministry. Working with kids in Awana, we may never see the fruit that comes from those children's lives. But every now and then, there'll be one or two that come along that you watch God work in their lives and you go, that's why I'm here. That's why we do what we do. That's why we spend so much money on a lot of stuff is because of those kids. In our older years, frankly, folks, for our whole time together about being fruitful and multiplying is we don't need a new word from God. We just need to continue to apply what we already know. How many of you go to work and you have to go through safety training? I do, or I did. I don't miss that a bit. But they kept telling us the same things over and over again. Electricity will kill you. Don't fall off the ladder. It's going to hurt. Wear your safety glasses. Wear all cotton clothes and your hard hat. Apparently, the end of the world comes if I have a hard hat and cotton clothes on, I'm safe. Okay? That was all they ever cared about. But I didn't need to know anything new. I needed to apply what I'd already been told. Same thing in our spiritual lives. You don't need to hear something new from God. There's no Bible to the sequel coming. God is speaking to us through his word, through the lives of the men and women in scripture, 
that he has captured their heart and has used them to write the word in the very words, the plenary inspiration that he gave them. The very words that God wants us to have is included in his Bible. It is part of, it is the Bible. It's what we need. It's what our heart's desire is. And we don't need a new one. We just need to take time to learn that one and spend time with that one and allow it to change our lives and to apply that knowledge later in our lives. The Bible is inexhaustible in its depth and cannot be mastered by the human mind. If you think you've mastered the Bible, you're deceiving yourself. Okay, would, would anybody here that's got an advanced degree care to tell me that they know everything they need to know about what's in here? I can get, I can get about two pages in and tell you that some of it is just beyond my scope. Please don't ask me to explain Ezekiel or um, some of the other prophets that saw stuff that I can't explain. I can't do it. God's not allowed me. Frankly, I don't think you can either. Then moving on in verse 12, the land which I give to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from his place, had spoken with him. This is the uh, last reference to a personal appearance of God in Genesis. In the, in the future, God speaks to Joseph in dreams. I've worked with people that said God gave them a dream. And, and frankly, I have a little problem with that, okay? Because God gave us what? What did God give us? Didn't he give us this? What can God tell me in a dream that he hasn't already told me in here? Isn't this the completed word of God? Isn't this the completed work of God? There's no sequel coming. There's no update. There's no second one. There's no Bible 2.0. God has told us all we need to know from here. But Joseph didn't have that. Joseph was relying on God to come to him in dreams, to teach him and to show him and to tell him what he needed to know. So in that moment, in verse 14, Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and poured out a drink offering. He also poured on it oil. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him as Bethel. Jacob is rehabilitating the altar. He's bringing it back into play. Bethel means house of God. Joseph understood at that point with a depth and devotion that as a young man he could not. How many of you have scars? How many of you have scars, okay? If you were to look at my hands closely, you would see that I have a lot of scars. Sorry, I'm really, I'm, I'm trying to make a point. Don't get, don't get too mad at me. I've been off work now for a year, maybe two. Okay, a little over. And I helped a friend with a hot tub. Now my elbows used to be like the back of my hands, hard. About 10 minutes of crawling around on my hands and knees left that. This one's even worse that it still bleeds. 10 minutes. That's a scar I'll never forget. My hands beat up with scars. Every one of them. Every one of them is a lesson that I had to learn. Your life's full of scars. Did you know that? That's what we call experience. We have a fancy name for it. It's called lifetime experience. But quite frankly, it's just scars. Scars on your heart. Scars on your hands, scars in your life, scars on your psyche, if you will, scars on your emotional world. Jacob now approaches the altar covered in scars. That's where God wants him. God uses those scars. If you will, he sees the altar now and sees God in a way that as a young man he could not. I think that's so true of all of us as we get older. 
we see God in a much different light. We see him in a different way. It has been humorously said that youth is wasted on the young. Any of you older folks want to say amen to that? And most of us have lived through at least four decades will attest to this. Wisdom often comes in the form of scars on your heart, on your hands, wherever God allows you to interact in a way that is going to change you. Not all scars are bad. My wife has two lovely scars on her knees where they uh, repossessed her original knees and put factory put new factory parts in there, okay? Karen is with us this morning. She has a new knee, and uh, so not all scars are bad. Then in verse 16, they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. And when she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. It came about as her soul was departing, for she died. Thus she named him Benoni, son of my sorrow, but his father called him Benjamin, son of the right hand. Son of the right hand showed a, a value to Jacob. The right hand is a place of honor. You know, when somebody says, this is my right hand man, this is the guy that's on the right, Benjamin would soon become a favorite son. And it's a bit of irony that we're reminded in Genesis 30 that Rachel prays to God, give me children or lest I die. And here that very prayer being answered cost her her life. Was God wrong? No, God was faithful. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over a grave, that is a pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. That pillar still stands today, but there's some disputes about it, much like part of that world. The Jews, the Christians, and the Muslim all claim to have part of it. There's some discrepancies as to where it might actually be. How does that affect your and I's life today? How does that change the way you live today? How does it change where you go for lunch? How does it change what you do when you get home? How does it change what you wear, what you dress, who you see? Frankly, it doesn't. But it's important to know that it still stands because God has said it is there. He said it is there to this day. Then Israel joined, journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. And it came while Israel was dwelling in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah's father, father's concubine. Israel heard of it. Now there were 12 sons of Jacob. Isn't it amazing that in the middle of something so good, something like this happens? This is like having a perfectly good Oreo with bad filling in it. You just got something here that's so good, that's so great. God is doing such a neat thing. He's, he's growing Jacob up. He's showing him his new name. He's got him headed the right direction. He's worshiping again. He's spending his time before God. His children are starting to see it. And then Reuben goes and lays with Bilhah, the father's concubine. But you see, there's more than just lust here. There's a reason for this. According to that culture, if a man, particularly that son, held the concubine or possessed vanquished enemies of the father, when the father died, it was assumed that he would take over all of the father's possessions. So this was a power play because he was afraid because of the way Jacob had treated Leah's children, namely Dinah, that he would be slighted and he wanted to rise to the top, but that's not what's going to happen. If you read on in scripture in Genesis 49, three and four, you will find that Jacob says, look, I know what you did and you're not getting a thing. You're out of the will, basically. Mankind hasn't changed much. We haven't stopped hating, lusting, cheating, conniving, 
planning, trying to get our way. How many of you would dare say that you've tried to manipulate circumstances so you come out on top? Ever kick a golf ball off to the side when you should have played it from where it was? I have. It's called a toe wedge. Give it a little kick. Oh, look, there it is. We all do it. Not all golfers do it, but we all do it in some form. The sons of Israel, of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. Then Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padaram. Jacob came to his father Isaac at, Mar- at Kirath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. An old man of ripe age and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Once again, the life cycle of these folks was quite long. And here are two brothers that were formerly estranged in the very last verse of this chapter. They come together to do the right thing. They'd been reconciled. They'd come together. And here they come and lay Isaac in the grave to do the right thing. They both learned. They both grew. They both experienced God's grace in a unique way. This morning, the Old Testament for us should be a an arrow that points us to Christ, to what God has planned for us. I ask you this morning, have you found yourself in these pages of the Old Testament? Anybody here dare say you were one of the characters in the Old Testament? Would you be a a Reuben? Would you be a Jacob, a usurper, a heel grabber? Would Would you be someone that got killed in Shechem? Where do you see yourself in Scripture? I've always believed that I see myself in every passage of Scripture with the exception of some of the stuff in like Song of Solomon and stuff. I don't necessarily see myself in there, but most of Scripture, I can find myself in one of those. I'd ask you this morning, as you finish this day, remember, God wants you to worship Him in its spirit and in truth from an open heart, a heart that loves Him and cares about you. He wants you to know Him in a personal way. Let's pray. Father God, there's much in your word that we will never understand. We will never come close. We will never even begin to hint at fully understanding what you're trying to accomplish. But yet, Lord, we trust you to do these things. As ugly as some of the pictures were in the the book of Genesis here, Lord, the beauty of what you have accomplished through your son cannot be denied. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We'd ask this morning that those that are here that have sat under my voice this morning, that you would quicken their hearts, that you would show them what you have for them. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.